This podcast is sponsored by the Davenant Institute. Spring term courses begin April 11th. Find out more at davenantinstitute.org and hear more at the conclusion of this podcast. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. I'm your regular host, Carl Truman, Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College in beautiful Western Pennsylvania. And I'm here with my regular co-host, the Reverend Todd Pruitt, a pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church, a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Good to be with you again, Todd. Good to be with you, Carl. Great to see you again. Um, are we allowed to talk about the fact that... Um, as we are recording this, before too much longer, you're 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 going to be a grandfather. I am. It could be just for the first time, or should I keep that a secret? It could. Well, you you should keep it a secret. It could be just okay. minutes away. Um, my daughter-in-law has been in labor, I think, for 27 hours at this point. So it's okay. hard as a man to get your head around that kind mm-hmm. of uh, physical exertion for this length of time. But really delighted. Uh, you know, it's hard to believe that somebody as youthful in outlook and appearance as me is going to be a grandfather. Yes. I know, but, so but such, such it is. So delightful oh. to to see it. And as I said to a friend yesterday, I'm now entering the next interesting phase of life that that ends with me dying, actually. That's I don't the think only there's anything left. else left to do after the this. Uh, retire and die, essentially. That's right. So, uh, but delighted. Of anyway, course, congratulations. To, yeah, well, we're excited for you, Grandpa. I, Thanks very much. And it's actually quite an apposite intro because today we're interviewing uh, an old friend, uh, Terry Johnson. He's a big fan of the program, particularly the music uh, we use for the introduction and the the outro. Often emails me to congratulate us on our choice of classic rock music. Um, Terry has published a couple of books recently. Uh, one on uh, Terry's always publishing books. Terry's always publishing books. Yeah. Terry's known, of course, uh, uh, out there as a man who has written with particular uh, aplomb and precision on the issue of Christian worship. And his latest book, just coming out, is uh, making the case for for family worship. Uh, family worship. I think I'd have to put my hand up and say it was one of the things that, as a father, I found most difficult. And as a father, I probably consistently fail to, to reach the, the requisite standard on, but is nonetheless an important aspect of Christian piety. Every year I, when I teach the humanities course at Grove, we look at the great, uh, when I'm doing the romantic section, we look at the great Robert Burns poem, uh, The Cotter's Saturday Night, which is a description. I think g- given Burns' existence as a, what I can make it, a godless human being, it is one of the most beautiful literary descriptions of a family gathering for simple family worship the night before the Sabbath one would ever read. So family worship should be a very beautiful thing. It's a neglected topic in our days of fast foods, dinners in front of the TV, everybody being overscheduled, but it's an important topic. And so, Terry, it's great to have you on the program. It's great to have you on to talk about this and other important topics. 
Uh, thank you. It's always an honor to be on the program. I appreciate the opportunity. <laughs> we know it's an honor to be with us. You know, it's, <laughs> man, man, who are you hanging out with normally if it's an honor to be with us? That's the question. <laughs> so uh, anyway, it's a true pleasure to have you on. What inspired you to write the book? Why do you think a book on family worship is particularly important at this moment in time? Among Christians, we know that the family is in crisis in the wider world. Why this book for Christians at this point in time? Well, it's meant to be a companion to the family worship book, uh, which is also published by Christian Focus. And this, this goes into much more detail about the biblical and theological and historical and practical background, which occupied only a few pages at the beginning of the family worship book. So I thought that I thought if we if I could provide a more convincing, more detailed argument for why you ought to do it, um, that uh, that would be something valuable to contribute to the overall discussion. I think, I think the basic question that parents ask, I think every parent, Christian parent asks, is, how do I transmit my faith to my children? We want to reproduce that in our children, and we have discarded many of the tools of the past. You know, we don't catechize like we should anymore. Um, and um, the public worship and the family altar, as it used or family pew, rather, it used to be called, that was also a, uh, an invaluable tool. Um, you know, take your kids to church every Sunday. That would be a good start if you want to transmit your faith to them. But also at home on a daily basis, gathering the family for family prayers, scripture reading, singing of praises, that uh, the cumulative effect of that uh, day after day, just a, uh, a, you know, a few minutes a day, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, the cumulative uh, effect of that is not to be underestimated. Terry, for, for folks that have been raised um, in church and maybe they have heard or been encouraged to you know, lead the family in a devotional or that sort of thing, um, they hear the term family worship and oftentimes wonder what that even is, family worship. I wonder if you would just, I, I know when I, having been raised Southern Baptist, the first time I heard the term family worship, when I was beginning to embrace the Reformed faith, I, I didn't know what that even meant. I didn't know what that consisted of, family worship. I wonder if you would just tell our folks, here's basically what we're talking about when, when we encourage you to have family worship? Well, what you're saying is, I think, common for most of us. I was brought up in a Christian home as well. Uh, we, didn't, uh, we didn't do family worship. And, and somewhere in the middle of the 20th century, the, the pattern, the habit, uh, the tradition of family worship broke down. But if you go back to the 19th century and then centuries before that, um, it was practiced everywhere. There are manuals of family worship you can get from the 19th century, and they cross denominational lines. Um, every, every denomination in its literature and publications was encouraging family worship. It, it was a near universal practice among Protestants uh, up until somewhere maybe before World War II. And then the whole thing just seemed to drop out of sight. Um, but what, what, uh, what we're talking about is really very simple. It's a uh, it's just gathering the family, set, a, set aside a regular disciplined time, 
which I think everybody can do. You, you know, you manage to get your teeth brushed every day, at least most of us do. And that's a matter of a personal discipline. Well, the, the, the family discipline of gathering, um, gathering together, take 15 minutes, you start with singing a few praises, you read a chapter or something uh, approximating a chapter of scripture, um, uh, and then you pray, and then you close with another, another song. And, and depending on the ages of the children, you will probably will want to reinforce some of the fixed forms in the service. Like, so you'll teach them the Lord's Prayer, and in the course of daily reciting of it, and the Apostles' Creed at some point, and the daily reciting of it, and maybe the doxology, and the Gloria Patri, and um, the Ten Commandments would be gradually worked in and become a part of the routine. And, and over time, you know, the family will read the Bible several times. The family will learn the basic psalms and hymns of the church. Uh, and the children will grow up hearing their parents plead for their souls. Powerful. You, you mentioned that, that family worship sort of drops out of sight around about the time of the Second World War. Are there any particular reasons for that, Terry? Any theological or sociological reasons that would, would make that not excusable but explicable? I, I don't have those. I mean, you probably have a better idea than uh, than I do, given given the cultural awareness that you have of what was going on um, in the middle of the century, uh, the fundamentalist modernist controversy. Um, I, it, it's hard for me mm. uh, to figure out what happened, but you, but I've been also astonished, at least when I first started thinking about this, which would have been right about 1990, um, and I started began to see that this was something that was done in the past. I was surprised to, to find how prevalent it was prior to that time, and then how it just became a thing of the past. But one of the surprising thing was the number of people, when I brought it up, who would say, oh, that was something my grandparents did. Mm-hmm. My parents talk about doing that when they were growing up. So it's not that far distance. This right. is something yeah. my grandparents were doing. My grandparents were born around 1900. That was not... That was uh, still being done in, in that generation. Yeah. I was wondering if it was the advent of the television, but of course, if it's happening pre-World War II, if it's starting to happen then, that's a little bit early for families to have televisions. Maybe the radio, perhaps, radio. Was, was supplanting things well, uh, at that point. Well, there was an article referred to by John Leith, who was a PCUSA theologian. He died oh, yeah. in the 19, 1990s. He, he somewhere made a reference to one of the Presbyterian um, magazines, denominational magazines, referring to 20,000 uh, Presbyterian youth in the 1920s having memorized the Shorter Catechism. Wow. 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 Well, that, that's, th- that is unimaginable today. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you can count on your fingers and toes the number of yeah. kids. And I, I think that that does have a lot to do with television and media and the way that the culture has gone away from print to visual yeah, media. But it affects the ability. It actually just affects the memory period uh, yeah. on a whole host of fronts, but that's. Yeah. When I was at, when I was at Trinity Bristol, uh, um, Alec Motier uh, referred to the fact that when he first started teaching Hebrew, that he would go through one of the declensions one time and the whole class would have it. Yeah, and yeah. that as he over the years as he taught it, that capacity diminished more and more and more and more. Yeah, um, and the, the capacity to remember was being lost. So he he likened it to a muscle that when you use it, it gets strong, and when you don't use it, you lose it. 
Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, it reminds me of the anecdote of C.H. Dodd, who was a liberal New Testament scholar, of course, but was being interviewed, I think, on the radio in Britain and was asked, you know, what would you do, Professor Dodd, if all of the copies of the Greek New Testament disappeared? And Dodd's comment was, well, I'd write it all out again. And the interviewer <laughs> said, what, you, you memorized the whole thing? And Dodd's response was, well, it's only a short book. <laughs> I think it was D.A. Carson used that anecdote to say, you know, this guy was a liberal and he'd memorized the New Testament in Greek. He thought it was that important. And, and we struggle to memorize a few verses from the Bible, a few questions from yeah, the catechism. Yeah. That's just an aside. Todd, you were going to ask a question. Well, well, it was just, it's interesting, you know, and even Carl, the anecdote you just used, you know, what, what you all heard described by Pastor Johnson a few moments ago is not a, a complicated, uh, daunting task to um, sing a, a, a hymn or two as a family, to read a passage of scripture and reflect upon it for a moment, to, to pray together, to maybe um, recite together um, uh, a, a couple of questions and answers from the catechism. This isn't, you know, that, that's not this frightening mountain of material that someone has to master in order to lead their family. It can be done very simply, but but the point is that the substance is so good and, and, and it's already there for you. But what I have found is that men in particular are curiously intimidated at the ch- by the challenge of doing this. As, as simple as I think this is, I don't know if they're going to be afraid of being asked uh, serious theological questions. I, I just say, you know, this is not necessarily a teaching time. This is read the Bible. Yeah. And you know, maybe questions will come up and some comments will be made, but it's not, ne- not necessary. Mm-hmm. We're just reading. You know? yeah. But they are, they are intimidated yeah. um, about uh, starting to, to do this. Yeah, I've found that as well. I've, I have found that to be true. And, and what I've found as a pastor oftentimes is, is that um, oftentimes men are afraid of being spiritually vulnerable uh, there before their wife and, and before their children. And I just try to encourage them um, that that's an, an illusion, um, uh, it, it, that there's nothing to be frightened by about it. There's material there for you to use. There are family worship guides out there for you to purchase and to use. Um, but that, that's what I have found is I found guys just feel intimidated. Maybe they're afraid they're going to be exposed as not being yeah. spiritually mature. And mm-hmm. to which my reply is, well, if you begin to do this regularly, you're, you're probably going to grow. You probably yeah. will mature as a Christian. And so use this as a means towards your sanctity towards your own sanctification. It wouldn't be the first time that men were intimidated by the spiritual depth of their wives, would it? Right, mm-hmm. right, exactly. Terry, you've, you've been pastor at Independent Presbyterian Church in Savannah, Georgia, for over 30 years now, is that correct? Yeah, just completed year number 35. Goodness. Like, like, like Carl, though, people are just amazed that I can look so young and yet have... Well, you were like 12 when you went there. I started yeah. there when I was 12, and, it, you know, it's, it's just, it's just uh, really, really, really surprising. <laughs> Is that your own hair, actually, Terry? I have to ask. Uh, you know, how do you guys manage to keep hair? That's, that's something uh, I never... That's, that's I never Carl and I's biggest that. conundrum. I, it's very, very, 
It's virtuous living. It's uh, <laughs> it's the Mexican well, Terry, Coca-Cola that you drink, I seem to remember. Is it Mexican oh, Coke? Oh, it's the best. Absolutely. <laughs> Made with real cane sugar. You got to be a connoisseur to know the difference. Uh, <laughs> that's, that, that's probably true. There's probably fewer chemicals, more cane. So, yeah. Terry, you, you know, you, so, so you've been at IPC for, for 35 years. When you went uh, there, uh, among other things, that's a church, if I'm not mistaken, that did not have this uh, tradition of, of family worship in the home and that sort of thing. And, and I wonder if you just tell, by, by way of encouragement, not just to the moms and dads out there, but to pastors, um, what did you do to, to teach, to encourage, to see that grow among membership in, in your church? Well, there, it was part of my own growth. Um, so I started there when I was 31. Uh, I was not reared reformed. I was constantly learning more and more about um, the reformed faith as it had been practiced. And it really ties into bringing home my firstborn. Um, And, you you know, you as a parent will know the experience of having, holding that little baby in your arms. And I started thinking about my responsibility and what a stewardship this was and how I probably had 18 years with him. And I started thinking about what I wanted to be sure to read to him. And um, the, I wanted to be sure that, um, that we read the Bible together and he learned the Psalms and hymns of the church. And, and I, didn't, I didn't want after 18 years to, to live with the regrets of, we always intended to do these things. Mm-hmm. And we, we, you know, we started and stopped and, and never quite got it done. I didn't want that to happen. Yeah. And so that's when I started to look into these, these things and learned about family worship and really communicated it to my congregation in that way. If you're not consciously setting out in a disciplined way, in a planned way, organized way, to read the Bible with your family, um, to teach them the, the devotional language of the church as it's expressed in our hymns and psalms, um, and, and to pray on a daily basis with and for your children, which is what you vow to do in a Presbyterian church when you baptize mm-hmm. them, it's not going to get done. Yeah. And so that's, that was it. It was, it was really, you know, we hold our children, their lives, their souls to be precious and we want them to come to Christ and to love him and serve him. And what does that mean? It means that we take them to church. It, it yeah. means that we catechize them. And it means that we, we gather the family da- daily with the word open, sing praises, and we pray. They should grow up with the, the sound of parental voices pleading for their mm-hmm. souls, ringing in their ears. Mm-hmm. Now they may run turn away from that, but if they do, I want yeah. I want that voice to haunt them into eternity, or yeah. convert them. And I, I think that latter point is very important, uh, Terry. In that, you know, as parents, we don't know the fruit of what we're sowing in our children's lives through things like family worship, and it may be many years. We may not live to see that fruit. Uh, in the short term, we're able to put our heads on our pillows at night and know that we fulfilled to the best of our ability our parental responsibilities. In the long term, we have hope that the words spoken to them uh, in family worship will bear fruit. I was thinking of the, the example I used is that 
the second thief on the cross, who seems to me to have a remarkable grasp of theology, right down to knowing that the kingdom is going to be inaugurated through the Messiah's death. Question is, where does he get that from? He certainly doesn't think it up on the cross. My, my speculative interpretation of that passage is he was well taught as a kid. Didn't make any difference to him because even he says, you know, I deserve to be hanging on a cross. But it made a difference to him at the one moment when it really needed to make a difference. And that was just before he, he entered eternity. So I think it's important for parents to grasp that kids can wander, wander away. But if you sow the seeds, then there's always hope. And you can pray that the Lord will honor what you've done uh, in, in that area. Well, I can tell you on the basis of firsthand experience, when your child is in the far country, uh, what may come back to them is one of the great hymns of the church mm. or one of the metrical Psalms will begin to, uh, you know, the, 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 the record of that will begin to, to play in their heads. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so having, having established that in their memory and as a part of their uh, living experience growing up, um, yet yeah, you're right. It, it may not happen uh, for a decade or two decades. Yeah. yeah. Can I just say at this point, by the way, that Spotify has uh, an excellent set of psalm recordings done at Terry's church. Uh, my wife okay. and I often listen to them when we go to church on a Sunday morning. Um, I presume, Terry, you're not withdrawing that because of the Joe Rogan controversy. You're, you're going to sort of stay out of that. <laughs> well, um, those recordings outraged. are really wonderful. <laughs> along, you know, along with Neil Young, we're outraged. So I always think of you and Neil Young in the same kind of breath. But oh. it's a serious point that, that it is a wonderful, uh, a wonderful collection of metrical psalms. And if you, well, if well, being as high tech as I am, I didn't even know that they were available on Spotify. <laughs> uh, maybe it's somebody pretending to be your church, but they sound pretty but, good. You, as, and, no, actually, you'll appreciate this, Carl. We went to to Scotland. Uh, in order to record those with, you know, the people that did the Scottish, um, the yeah. Scottish Psalms, yeah. um, our, our choir director at the time went over there and hired that choir and their organist wow. and Wonderful. did the Trinity Psalter recordings yeah. with them. Yeah. My wife oh, and I often play, try to guess the tune because of course, having been in the Free Church of Scotland for some years and her for a long, long time, we're, we're very familiar with the old Scottish Psalter and the Scottish tunes, but just commend that to our listeners. It's, it's mm -hmm. a wonderful collection. If you're wanting something uh, uplifting and edifying to listen to when you're heading to church on a Sunday, it's good. Uh, Terry, I wanted to ask you before we, we let you go, um, a couple of years ago, you wrote a book uh, entitled, Who Am I? What the Bible Teaches About Christian Identity. Now, this is from just a couple of years ago, and so I, I doubt you uh, kind of foresaw um, how, uh, how pressing this particular subject would be even at this very moment in the PCA in terms of how we think about identity, because I, I believe you published the book in, in, in 2020, if, if, if I'm thinking correctly. Um, but, but what the Bible teaches about Christian identity, this is a situation where uh, an issue that, that as a denomination, PCA, we are wrestling through right now because of the incursion of revoice and, and side B homosexuality and that kind of thing. I know you didn't write the book to um, respond to that because some, some of this is, 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 is very fresh. But I, I was thinking just the other day about um, resources. Uh, to help people think about themselves in terms of 
What does it mean to be a new creation in Christ? What, what do all these things that the New Testament tells us about who we are and how we think about identity? So, so where, where did the book come from? Why did you see that it was pressing enough to put your efforts into it? I think the identity question actually for me goes back to the controversies of the middle teens over sonship. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I saw was a trend of, of making one item in the Ordo Salutis, the be all and end all of salvation. And that yeah. warping uh, our sense of identity. So the, the whole gospel is justification or the whole gospel right. is adoption or the whole gospel is election. And how would it, you know, when you seize on one of the items of the Ordo, it warps your whole understanding of, 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 of who you are, of our identity. Yeah. And so it really started there. And actually the first draft of who am I did not have the two, the two opening chapters and as it was in the process of being published, I asked them to stop and let me go back and add um, a chapter on our human identity and a chapter on our fallen identity in light of these issues that were coming out about homosexuality and transgenderism, because Mm -hmm. I I came to realize, wait a minute, before I have a Christian identity, I have a more, I have a more broad-based human identity. I'm made in the image of God and I'm made male and female. And those two aspects of identity are, are foundational to the, what we then build upon in, in Christian identity. And so to establish the sanctity of human life and our identity as image bearers, and then our identity as either male or female, um, that really takes on the transgender um, mm-hmm. issue. Male and female is very deliberate and distinctive that, you know, the terms for male and female are, are the terms for sexual differentiation that can be applied to animals and insects even. Right. And, right. And, 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 and in a chapter in which God is making distinctions between light and darkness and the, you know, the sea and the dry land, uh, the dry land, we, male and female is being very deliberately created and distinguished. And mm-hmm. so that also is fundamental to who we are. Several weeks back, Carl and I were talking about the issue of identity because in the whole debate over revoice side B homosexuality within the PCA and the two overtures, the two now infamous overtures, overtures 23 and 37, that that seek to add language to our book of church order in examining candidates for sacred office to examine them in terms of how they think about their identity. You know, do they think about their identity in terms of sin that ought to be mortified, et cetera, et cetera? And some of the opposition to those overtures has been, well, you know, the whole concept of identity is strictly modern, and, and the Bible really doesn't give us, um, you know, that, that that's an extra biblical category, and so those overtures are useless because because identity is extra biblical, and besides, it's too uh, it, it's it's too opaque of an issue. For us to have a meaningful conversation about. How do you respond to that? You are not your own. That's an appeal to identity. Who are you? It is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It is. Um, uh, no, no, the word identity isn't, isn't bandied about in the New Testament, but you know, that, that has is the never, word Trinity. Yeah. right, right. I mean, that's the classic case. Of course, we, yeah. when we begin to talk about a subject um, and we all agree 
in believing the biblical language, then we have to go further and define what we mean by the language. And so that's what we do with Trinity. And I think that with identity, there's definitely identity. I mean, for the Apostle Paul to say, you are not your own, he's addressing the whole issue of who are you? Right. Yeah. You've been bought yeah. with a price. You can't can yeah. you cannot behave the way that you are behaving because of who you are. So, You're a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. That's identity language. Yeah. Yes, and I'm. Uh, I guess I, I think that the the whole relationship between in, indicatives and imperatives isn't that what that's all about? That's like the structure mm-hmm. of the of the New Testament and New Testament epistles. We establish with the indicatives the truths that then inform the imperatives. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's been great having you on again, Terry. Uh, thanks so much for all that you do, especially for your books on worship that many of us found very helpful over the years, and particularly for this uh, most recent book, uh, Understanding Family Worship from Christian Focus Publications. And we'd like to say to our listeners, if they'd like a, a copy of this, uh, please go to our website, mortificationspin.org, and they stand a chance to enter uh, for a draw and win a copy of Terry's book. If you are not, uh, if you are not a, a one of the winners, uh, please purchase. Go the buy book. it. Go buy it. Uh, buy it from wherever you normally. I'm having been slapped for recommending bookshop.org. I will say buy it from wherever <laughs> you normally buy books. Carl, uh, you know what so. I'm really looking forward to is to see what rock and roll song you are going to be able to peg to family worship. Oh, uh, we'll, we'll find one. We're going to find something. You, you got yeah, three, or four, three or four rock aficionados here already. We'll, we'll find something something. from the Rolling Stones or Aerosmith, yeah. Yeah, something um, really kind of vile. Yeah. Your, your, geni- your genius in, in, in your ability to do that <laughs> takes my breath away. <laughs> we also have uh, Mark Daniels, who, who helps us, who's, who's been in radio forever. Yeah, Mark. Is and, a, uh, uh, and he's kind of an encyclopedia as well. So you've got Carl and Mark both he, um, run, running through their massive Rolodex. Of he gives us rock. a master class in classic rock. Mm-hmm. So, But anyway, Terry, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah. We wish you well in, uh, in your ministry. Look forward to having you back on the podcast again at some point. All that remains now is me to thank our listeners and to say that we look forward to being with you next time. And now, in honor of our guest, the time-honored morning mood of Peer Gint by composer Edvard Grieg. Sorry, Terry. This is still mortification of spin. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. So okay, so Terry is in Atlanta with a uh, a new grandchild. Carl is even as we speak waiting on word uh, from his son and daughter-in-law about the arrival of what will be grandchild number one. 
she w- will be. In fact, I just mm-hmm. got a text saying she's now pushing, which I presume means we're there, we're coming to the very go. end. Of this <laughs> Again, okay. thanking the Lord that I'm a man. It's just it's just great <laughs> to be a man, you know. The Davenant Institute retrieves the wisdom of classical Protestantism to renew and build up the contemporary church. Through publications, events, and courses, they equip lay people, pastors, scholars, and Christian educators by connecting them with the theological, ethical, and cultural riches of Protestants' past. Through their online program, Davenant Hall, and their residential study center, Davenant House, they are reimagining theological education, providing two affordable graduate-level degree programs in classical Protestantism. They also welcome anyone taking one-off courses in theology, church history, philosophy, and more. Online classes are taught by expert scholars in two-hour weekly Zoom sessions over 10 weeks from just $149 per class. Next term's courses include the Reformation and the Modern World, Knowing and Naming the Holy Trinity, Discovering J.R.R. Tolkien, and many more. Spring term courses begin April 11th and registration ends March 25th. Find out more at DavenantInstitute.org. That's D-A-V-E-N-A-N-T Institute. DavenantInstitute.org. And on Facebook and Twitter.